I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today, I'm speaking with Samantha Clark. Samantha is a happiness consultant, a speaker, a podcast host, and author of Love It or Leave It, How to Be Happy at Work. As a happiness consultant, Samantha is on a mission to liberate individuals from work they no longer love and to find a path to true work happiness. As a faculty lecturer at the School of Life and the Guardian Masterclass, she facilitates workshops on career potential, building a portfolio career, managing stress, confidence, and authentic leadership. Samantha is also the host of a podcast series, Conversations with Samantha And, and a newer series, Love It or Leave It with Samantha And in which she interviews individuals who have taken the reins of their own work happiness and found a path to be successful while happy. So it's interesting that COVID-19 and the lockdown for most of us, I find that people that were on a path of seeking inwards have come further into that path. So people are like, okay, okay, hold on, hold on. I can stay at home for four months and reflect. I want more of that. Is that how you feel? Do you know what I find? I find that when I think about myself personally, and I'll put my clients separately, for me, it had two consequences. I I have a chronic illness anyway. So I was definitely on the vulnerable list. And I remember speaking to a friend who works in government and she said, oh, it's not just a a simple one or two months. Like you're going to need to be in for at least three months. And I said, really? And she said, yeah, you're going to, they'll put you on the vulnerable list and you guys probably will be locked down until maybe August. And so immediately there was a part of me that was like, oh, actually this could be interesting. (laughs) I'll take it. Uh, But I was also, for me, my book was launched the day before we had lockdown in the UK. Oh, is that true? Yeah. I was equally frustrated and also just a little bit felt like an anti-climax I'd spent so long writing this thing and then suddenly all my events were cancelled I had to cancel my launch parties do everything online and I just sat back and I thought hmm how could I serve differently in this space now if I don't have the events and I don't have to be anywhere and actually people are online and then there was the whole thing around the furloughing and people starting to get real shaky about their job situation. So it did lead me to the question of how could I serve differently? And also how could I embed myself in my space and get comfortable knowing that technically I can't actually go anywhere for two months. So I flipped it in a different way and I I started to lean into it and enjoy it. Really take the time to create my rituals, to create my routines, to fall in love with delivering my message online, think about serving people and getting into those richer conversations. And what I noticed with my clients is they either went two ways. There was the 
for people who aren't generally okay with being quiet and still, we're looking for the distractions. And then also then being furloughed, it was a case of, okay, so now I'm being paid to do nothing and I'm just irritable. And it took a while for some of them to settle into finding ways to channel that energy. And there were others who were like, actually, this is an interesting time for me to step into purpose, to really ask myself, was that hour and a half commute really worth it? Are there other ways that I can work? Or could that niggling question that I had around, is this work really right for me? Suddenly it's like, hmm, I'm actually doing the work I'm doing. I feel less tension because I'm not sitting next to my coworker who was doing my head in. And they were sitting with it differently and purpose and meaning started to erupt and it became more of a, a self-reflection journey. Yeah. It's not your first, is it? I mean, the idea of being a happiness consultant. I looked at your profile. I didn't know that from the time when we met, but you were a personal style consultant early in life. That's a big change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What led you to do that? Do you know, I think when I started, I was in advertising and branding and I just felt very um, conflicted by what I was selling. I just, you know, <laughs> sugary cereals and the Alco Pops, it didn't sit right with me and I just couldn't figure out how I was supposed to be creative or I was trying to ask that question for myself, like how, what is creativity to me? And equally, I always loved shoes. I always felt like they were architecture for the feet. I was very tall and like, you know, when you go and try on things, shoes were just like the easiest thing to kind of fall in love with and buy. <laughs> Says every woman on the planet. <laughs> every woman on the planet. Yeah. For me, it was then a case of, okay, if I'm not looking at the strategy and the branding around that, like, how does that relate to people? Or, you know, I was starting on a journey to create my own footwear line and then we hit the last recession and, you know, my backers were like, actually, it's a very money intensive business. It's a no go. So I thought, okay, looking at my skills, I've got the branding, the strategy. I love fashion. I love styling. And at that point, someone said, you know, this mate of mine has been made redundant. I think you need to give him a bit of a, you need to help him say, like, talk about himself through his style. I just don't think it's coming across right. And he's got some interviews. And I thought, yeah, cool. You know, it's just another way of connecting with people. And I felt what was missing in my previous jobs was about seeing the transformation or helping somebody get to those transformations. I felt as in client management, it was just you get the briefing and I work with the creative. There's, there's nothing rich there. And then when we got talking, it was only through his stories and the conversations that he was talking about work. That I was like, oh, this is fascinating. And I was like, why don't you do this? Why don't you say that to that person? Or now you're looking for a new job. Why don't you think about being an entrepreneur? And I just, I love that. So I feel like the style was a vehicle to me delving and peeling away some onions around myself and I could have it could have gone either way I could have just you know moved even more into style and do more of the training and the like really selling that and I just thought actually that's taking me down an even more maybe vacuous route and actually what I really loved was the immersive conversations and the problem solving mm. and the getting to know somebody at their most intimate right we're in the changing room talking about work and stuff and they're feeling comfortable with me and I was like, this is what turns me on. This is what really actually gives <laughs> me that buzz. So two of the things you spoke about so far actually are quite intriguing. So your focus is to help 
leaders, entrepreneurs, and people in general find happiness at work, right? But so far, we've covered in passing a couple of points. One is the point of how people use their work as distraction, which is so interesting, which we found out when people got locked down in COVID-19 and started to struggle with the idea of, I need something to distract me. So work is not my purpose. It's not even paying my bill. It's just something to occupy my mind. And then, you know, the other one is when you started your career in in advertising and marketing, most people would have continued their career in advertising and marketing. And basically, they never really question if it's just a job, you know, it's like, I don't really have to like it. It doesn't have to mean anything to me. How can anyone be happy at work if this is our mindset? We're using work just because it's just work or work because it's a distraction. Mm, Interesting questions. I do believe that there are maybe three pathways when we think about work. And I think it depends on where you are in your life, maybe what you're looking for, and also whether or not you've taken the time to have those deep questions. And I think a lot of people are scared to sit in those silent spaces where things like that bubble up. Like, who are you? Who are you supposed to become? Yeah. These are the kinds of questions that you want to battle. Important questions, right? Yeah, important questions. But a lot of people want to be on Instagram or maybe like, you know, have a drink or just go out. And I think that there is the job, you know, this is the thing that we do maybe for the money because it is helping us to clear down some debt, care for a parent. Maybe it's helping us facilitate study after work. And it's enough for us to feel like actually I'm going there. I feel like I'm being paid value to a certain degree because it's fueling the rest of my life. I also think that people move into maybe finding a career. Maybe they have seen an entity or a way, you know, a company or a lifestyle or a certain level of expertise and respect that they want. And they see that actually by climbing the career ladder or moving in that place, that's going to take them to where they want to get to. Or this vision that they have of who they are going to be at that point is what they're chasing. And then I think there's other people who wake up and maybe have a calling and are like, actually, I'm meant to do more. And I keep finding myself in this space, deciphering what else I'm supposed to do. I think for me, I was definitely not satisfied with just doing the, the job or the career. Like I wanted more and I knew I could be more as well. Maybe that's my own inner like push and tenacity or like, determinedness but I just thought I have to be doing more than this like I just feel like I'm, I'm not really existing and I <laughs> saw my parents exist at work and maybe do it to pay the mortgage to you know they were coming here from Jamaica and it was very much around building the life and working and giving me everything that they could so that I could go to a good school and get that good education but I don't think they enjoyed work it was really toilsome Are we supposed to enjoy work? I mean, it's work. Well, I feel like I think this is the provocation that I want people to think about is that if you are going to show up every day, how are you defining that space and time as meaning for you? Like, where is the impact that you're creating or it's creating for you as the ripple effect in your life? The question now that we face is obviously if we do move into a place of universal basic income, a lot of people are probably thinking, 
So if work is removed and I found it difficult in lockdown to occupy myself or to maybe distract myself, like what's next for me? And then we could either face a downward spiral of either not engaging life or in learning or in the self-reflection or we go the other way and we're like actually lavish that time that we haven't had to lean into our hobbies and family and community and that becomes another way to channel our purpose and our calling so you say it with confidence we're falling into universal i don't know it's a tricky one but i do feel that we're we're in a place where essentially that's what most people have been on for the past five months, right? Without it being called that. The government has found some way to allow companies to pay them a basic salary, maybe not 100% of what they were on before, but they're getting something every month to essentially still be kept on by the company, but they're at home. They don't have to necessarily work. And some of it was interesting from a client perspective, coaching some of the managers who were like, I find it very odd that I'm still employed by the company, I'm still on, but all of my team are furloughed and I can't talk to them about work and they're not doing anything and it's a very odd place to be in. So I, I actually have to say this took a lot of thinking from me because once again, if you really, really go back to our early days before humanity had a Harvard Business Review and MBA degrees, Work was just a survival mechanism. We used to go to work to get what we need so that we live. And then when we started to go through the Industrial Revolution and work became really not as rewarding as it used to be, because if you were a shoemaker before the Industrial Revolution, you made as many shoes as you needed to survive. Now you're making as many shoes as you need to survive and the greed of your employer is satisfied with. So work became annoying. And so we started to do two things. One of them is we started to sell work as purpose. It's like, I'm here, you know, because I'm supposed, this is the purpose of my life is to be an accountant. I was made to come to this life and add numbers. Like, you know, that doesn't make sense to me, right? And then on the other hand, you start to go into the idea of happiness at work, which basically is saying, look, we know it's annoying, Okay, but we're going to try to make you happy at it, which actually you and I, I know we work at this differently because we believe that happiness is fundamental to work. I think most employers go into, you know, the idea of employee satisfaction of like, okay, you know, let's just give them a few things to make them fill the survey and say we're okay. And I think the challenge here is from a fundamental point of view, what you're saying is if you take your work as a job or a career, not as a calling, by definition, your work is never going to be fulfilling, right? And then in that case, why work at all? And that's where universal basic income comes in, where we can tell people, well, you know, if your work is not fulfilling and work was originally a survival mechanism, we might as well just have you paid some money because in the future, the machines are going to do the work and you can stay at home and survive, I don't think any of that works. I think there is something fundamentally wrong at the core of the principle that we've come to call work. Interesting. So what do you think, because, you know, as you describe it like that as well, there is that horrible feeling of what happens to a class of people who 
that is the thing where it's like, oh, actually, if this work isn't done or, or we're going to be automating out your jobs anyway at some point, see you later, take £2,000 a month, off you go. And it just kind of almost cuts a certain demographic or a certain level where it's just like, okay, that's enough. You go and do that. And actually, we'll look after the people who have the skills that we can continue to cultivate until maybe they get automated. And I wonder where we're going in terms of understanding the real essence of people. And it becomes, mm -hmm. like we say, a porn game, moving, shuffling people from one place to another. These people, can we can put them aside and give them UBI. And like these people, actually, there's a bit more potential and they can wait a bit, a couple of more years before we then move them into that realm as well. I kind of feel like it's playing a game of chess almost. I have a big uh, economic dilemma around building all of that, which is the idea that if the machines do all the work, people still need to have purchasing power to be able to buy what the machine is building. Otherwise, yeah. there is no point building it. So there is an economic dilemma of even if you don't force people to work to make the money, you still have to give the people the purchasing power so that the goods are purchased and the economies continue so that those who have the machines make the money. And that view is rarely ever discussed in the evolution of AI and robotics and so on and so forth, which is the economic view of it. But the question really is, even if we manage to have everyone enjoying purchasing power that allows them to live comfortably and purchase the goods that are being made by the machines, there are two issues. One is the transition between today and that point, because in that transition, there will be people with unequal opportunities. And the second is, can the people, when they become unemployed, go back to their nature of like, yeah, I was not born employed anyway. I had so many things to do when I was young that I enjoyed my life with. And my life's purpose had nothing to do with being an accountant or a lawyer or a singer or whatever that is. I can sing without having to make money on it. I can enjoy my mathematics if I love math without having to earn money on it. And it's that confusion, I think, that needs to be unsolved. Yeah, and I think the big point that you raised there is all of what you talked about in the earlier part was based around consumption. Yeah. And I think it is a re-evaluating of how we spend our time and do we really need all the stuff that we are working so hard to pay for? And I think that was the deep question in lockdown you know, and you can already see it in the change of habit. People are, oh, actually, if I don't need to go anywhere for meetings and this kind of stuff, do I need that extra pair of heels? Do I need to be eating out at X amount of places Monday through to Friday when actually we could make it a treat or, you know, even more so now, unfortunately, we can't. But I just wonder if there is a space for exploring what happens when the carrot that you're chasing changes and actually you become a bit more in tune with, okay, what can I live on? What am I interested? What am I actually interested in? You know, there's a lot of people right now who are thinking, what's the point of me being in London? And I want to be in nature. I want to be surrounded by the elements differently. And does living in a capital city, do I still need that? Yeah. You know, yeah. these are the kinds of questions that are coming and, you know, even questions that I'm facing and you and I are having, you know, those conversations around how do we get more space, reflection time, stillness, that embracing and finding 
and retreating within ourselves as part of our working week, yeah. part of our lives versus it being the two weeks that we wait for to go on that Vipassana retreat. Correct. Yeah. And it's quite eye-opening because as you rightly said, this is, I think this is the biggest humanity change experiment that happened in my lifetime where you suddenly recognize, I, you know, the way I describe it is that you go to the big city to find the big job that pays for you being in the big city. And so you go to that job and accordingly become unable to eat healthy. So you eat on the fast food restaurants on your way to work every day. And for that, you need to earn the money from the job that just basically pays for those fast food restaurants that you eat at every day. And that cycle, it's like, basically, if you just dismantle that cycle at any point in the middle, then suddenly everything sort of falls in place, doesn't it? It's not the same lifestyle at all, but it's a, it's a still a workable lifestyle, less costs, less dependencies, and accordingly less need to be in that place. Yeah. I also think that we, we have to really question what is it all for? And I remember having this conversation with a friend and she said, you know, the more money I earn, the more money I spend. I find myself in a place where I actually haven't saved for the core things that I do want in life. You know, I would love to have a house or, you know, to be able to make sure that if my parents needed to be, or I needed care to get them care or whatever, like I could afford that. And suddenly I'm in a place where I've got lots of receipts of all these amazing places I've been to. And fundamentally, the, the core things in my life I haven't sorted. Yeah, but that's because the pressure that you get being part of that treadmill requires yeah. you to take time away to unwind and recharge so that you can go back to the pressure of the treadmill. It's really yeah. an interesting question. But that's one side of the experiment. The other side I really wanted to talk to you about today. So you're helping people find happiness at work. And that whole idea of working from home and the disruption to the way work has happened must have really thrown a big twist in your approach to happiness as well. Can you share with me a little bit about what did you see as the main challenges to happiness in this new environment? What can we do to change those? Yeah, interesting question. You know, when I ask people, what do you want to love or leave behind to create more happiness in your workplace? And it's still the same fundamental issues. There are still the issues or the concerns that they have with people and relationships. I think it's also the actual job role itself and the industry in the sector. And I think what was amplified even more so in the, in the actual kind of lockdown or period of quarantine, reflection, retreat, whatever you want to call it, I think a lot of people were exposed to one, their company's attitude and real approach to people. So, you know, how were things discussed, handled at a senior management level? How were employees made to feel between those who were furloughed and those who weren't? It then shows and shines a deep light on the actual company that you work for. You know, you might think it's this, and then suddenly when crisis hits the road, how are they handling that crisis? How are they handling the people that they claim to care so deeply about? I think what was maybe exacerbated before in terms of um, conflict at work, which is a big cause of, you know, lack of engagement and lack of performance on the job or them feeling happy at work. It either went two ways. People were like, actually, I don't feel the conflict or the tension because we're not in the office. 
what I am feeling now is how do I relate to that or how do I have that conversation virtually? Or it's the opposite way where it's like, oh my gosh, I used to love having that banter with people <laughs> working on the same team and the water cooler moments and hey, do you want to go for lunch? I'm going to go and grab a coffee. And now you're like, you're speaking to the four walls or you're having to go on a Zoom treadmill all day just to have connection. And so there is that issue too. It's like, how do I get the nuanced bite-sized moments of connection and conversation and energy and cross-collaboration and ideas when it's not so spontaneous? And I think also when it's around the job, there are certain things that were facilitated a lot more easier being in an office when now I'd suddenly parts of the job role itself just felt a lot more difficult doing that online. And so I do think that the fundamental the problems are still fundamentally there, but now there is the increased area around isolation, not knowing how to reach out and ask for help because now it feels like such an extra ask to either have the phone call or to hop on a zoom with somebody when you could just walk over to someone's desk before and i think the blurred lines between especially if you know in london spaces are premium so not everyone's in big luxury houses you might be in a studio flat and suddenly everywhere you turn is work your laptop's there you can't really switch off or you're juggling family and thinking about how do I on one hand the time that I'm saving on the commute I'm having more time with my family and more times with my kids but equally we're both trying to juggle childcare and be present for this meeting and think about how to give each other rest and balance so lots of lots of those issues stemming from there but fundamentally I think some of the core problems are still there just elevated in new ways Do you have any tips that you think? So, I mean, forget employers. If I am at home and the environment is a small studio and I feel that I'm stuck in work all day, that connecting is a lot more difficult and so on, what would you advise me as a person, not my manager? I think my manager also needs to do things, but what should we do to get over all of this? So I do, and I, I totally agree with, that finding that sense of agency in yourself to think about how do I want to lead my day and where am I going to be more productive? And I think it is really looking at a variety of factors. How are you starting and ending your day, first and foremost? So what is your wind up and wind down routine? So how are you thinking about your day, manifesting what it is that you want, priming yourself with knowledge or insight or that replenishment time in the morning, fitness, food, looking at the core things that are going to give you the best energy for your day. I would also think it's really important to zone your space differently. Like for me, when I think about how I zone, how I want to live, like for me, fragrances and things like that were really helpful during this time to know actually spaces like this, and this is what it smells like. This is the, the experience of work. And then when I'm leaving work, It means also a change of clothes. It means also different fragrances, different time to unwind. And then there was another period of unwinding before bed. So you're, while you're moving around your own little space, you're moving into sort of different semantics. Totally. Because that's mm. how we are. When we leave and we go into work, we have the work energy that we provide. And 
oftentimes, as Esther Perel says, you know, we're bringing that same work energy back into our relationships. And that's where the issue is and the discord where we try to function like we are at work. And suddenly there's that disconnect. And it's the same when you're when you're thinking about your working day, you might have broken it up by going for dinner with friends before you come home or maybe you, you went to see a gallery or an exhibition or something. That whole thought process should be replicated at home. Just because you're working from home doesn't mean that you need to spend all day on your laptop. You need mm. to think about how do I create different experiences, weave in that meditation. So I've started doing a lot of like just travel visualizations to break up my day. So if I've got admin and other kinds of work and I want to step into a more creative space, I'll go on like a visual holiday. So I'll take myself maybe to, you know, mentally exploring Japan or like feeling like that energy. And that revs me up for an afternoon of like content creating or like visualizing, planning, that kind of stuff. So I'm really thinking about how do I experience and spice up my working day to energize me. And also, if you feel like you can't be held accountable to be consistent with that, you need to get a buddy of some description, you know, someone who's going to check in with you and make sure that you aren't burning the midnight oil till whatever time, but also mm-hmm. that you know your biorhythms as well. I think we've been so out of sync with when we actually work well, because we've been trying to fit into this nine to five model. And suddenly you might realize that I'm actually great working from six till 12. So why don't I do that? And then the rest of the day is something else. Or how do I start to communicate that to my manager or my team? And the team start to think about, okay, how do we coexist with each other? If you're coming on at this hour, you're doing this kind of work. Can we make that work? And I think for me as well, like when I look at the workspace as well, it's like, what do you need to feel like you are energized about the work that you're delivering. Like, what does your space feel like? I'm very sensory. That for me definitely helps kind of ease through. So I I want people to think about their working day no longer as like some sort of drudgery in front of a laptop. It's like, actually, this is the experience and there's going to be what I call different zones. Are you moving into a day of bravery where you're pushing yourself Mm -hmm. to learn new things? Or is it a day of joy where it's just going to be a lot of fun Or is it a day of like self-leadership or is it knowledge seeking? And when you set yourself compass for how you want to grow your day, I think that really changes your attitude and your approach to remote working. How about time management? A lot of the questions I get from people are either related to, I just can't get myself started. I'm not a self-starter unless my boss is on my head and telling me to do things. I'm not available or others that are saying, look, I start and I never stop. I don't take breaks. I come out of my desk and I just make a tea and come back to my desk and the day turns into one big blob of work. And actually, a lot of people are saying as a result of that, the week turns into one big blob of days of work. And then suddenly it's four months in and I don't feel that the four months have happened. How do you structure that? How do you cut that into pieces that are manageable? So I would really like um, an individual to think about throughout your working week, what are the types of exercises that really get your heart pacing? And where do you see yourself flatlining? And how do you organize your day so that you are making sure you're either identifying, can those tasks be broken down in a way that I can start to find them enjoyable? Do I need to maybe think about collaborating with someone to get those things done? Because I think majority of the time when people can't self-start or get 
into a place of working is because there is a procrastination block or they're just not enjoying the work or they're just feeling like I'm going to be easily distracted by the internet or the Instagram. And so it talks to a level of self-discipline as well. So what will you do to create, if you know that you have a wandering eye or shiny object syndrome, mm. how will you use technology to a certain degree like rescue time or the freedom app, like to really control maybe the amount of time that you're going to go down an internet wormhole? Yeah. What are you going to do to chunk your day, either using the Pomodoro technique or like mine, breaking it up with mini visualizations to say, actually, I'm going to dedicate an hour to this and an hour to that, break it up rather than seeing it as one massive task that feels really overbearing and boring as well. So yeah. it's our attitude and approach to the task and piecing all of that together and just thinking, okay, what is going to be kind of cue rewards kind of framework? So when you do feel yourself being triggered to deviate from what you need to do, what is that trigger? And what do you normally lean into? What's the behavior that you fall into? Is it eating a biscuit or is it, you know, checking the Instagram or is it putting your washing on? And actually, where's the reward that you get from that? And how do you start to disrupt your behavior cycle and think, actually, if the cue is that I'm looking up from my computer and I've only done like, I don't know, 30 minutes worth of work and I'm not there yet, like, how will you disrupt your behavior to get back into it? Or what do you need to kind of push yourself back into a state of working on something and changing that spiral that you're going to fall into? Whereas I think somebody who is in a place where they're either overworking, that definitely needs, again, a question around discipline. Like, are you overworking because there is an internal motivation about wanting to be seen wanting is there something around presenteeism and over delivery over functioning is there something around the fact that maybe you enjoy it and you're in so much flow that you've forgotten to set some parameters and some boundaries because we're not computers like none of us have moved mm. into the transhuman realm and so we need to realize that our bodies and our brains do need breaks and our brain especially cannot function our eyes as well cannot function by constantly just looking at a screen and moving forward. So we need to think, okay, what is it? Why am I actually working so hard? You know, when you really dig down into that question, there is some deep seated avoidance perhaps, but there is also a, I want to be seen as being delivering, especially now I've seen this a lot in remote working. I want to be seen as contributing, yeah. being on top of it. And that is a cultural issue. Yeah, I always felt it was either fear or ego. If, if you're working too hard or trying to prove in any way, whatever, if you find yourself trying to prove in any way, it's either fear that if I don't, I might be left behind or, you know, disapproved yeah. of or whatever, or it's ego. You know, this is what my parents told me I should be. This is what society told me I should look like. And so I'm yeah. going to keep that image. I'm going to keep the image of the absolute amazing, hardworking kill it all the time, do everything every time, you know, and these are important questions to ask yourself, I believe. What I found really, really interesting now that you were talking about Instagram and other internets is I somehow realized because of those little tools that I have on my phone that tell me how much time I spend on the phone, that there was a point during the lockdown where I spent between four and a half and six and a half hours a day on my phone. 
I am admitting in front of all of you, you know why I'm not ashamed? Because I'm sure many of you are in that same place. It just flies away. We don't feel it. And so I categorized my internet connection into what I call toxic and useful. And in toxic, I had typing and swiping. These are the two activities that are toxic. And then everything else like working, you know, learning, chilling, connecting, all of that is useful internet. So if I, you know, you and I now chatting on the internet, that counts as good time. It's valuable time. But then mindlessly swiping through Instagram, that stuff, man, that consumes us. And and I have now limited myself to a couple of hours of toxic internet a day. So only two hours of poison, <laughs> which is crazy. But I'm going to go to an hour. I mean, my work requires me to be on those social media. That's the point that I was going to say, though. Where is that? You know, you're a very astute man. You've done your, your kind of self-reflection. You can kind of decipher if this is taking me down the wrong path or this is what I need for work. But I feel like there's a lot of people where those boundaries feel very blurred. Totally, totally. On one hand, you might be an entrepreneur and there is a part of you that feels like if I'm not present on these social platforms and I'm not visible, will I get work? Or am I using that time visualizing and looking at information on Pinterest as part of me who is a creative designer and I'm room planning for somebody? Where is the fine line between this feels like good work internet and this feels like toxic internet. Because, you know, if we look at the work of Niriel, like I've had him on my podcast and these systems were built to keep us addicted. But it's us who have to find that self-discipline to realize, is this serving me or am I serving it? And I wonder, how do we ask ourselves that question consistently Because it goes back to the original conversation that you and I were having about rather than trying to develop a monk-like attitude on holiday, how do we weave more of that into our working week? So rather than just have a digital detox for a week, which is what a lot of people do, oh, I'm, I'm coming off social media, I'm having a month off this time, and then you get back and your consumption's just the same. It's like, how do we maybe ask ourselves, you know, that question of service, but also... Like, what do I really need from this platform? Mm. Or if good time on the internet is about connection, discovery, conversation, how will I make space to plan for that and be okay with the fact that two hours of my time might be mindless scrolling? Because I think there is also a mental thing around making peace with the fact that we also need distraction or we need boredom time. I don't know about that. So mindless is really the key word. You know, so I could be on Instagram answering a question from a reader, okay? And that's not mindless at all. I'm completely in it. I'm completely focused. And while I'm typing, it's actually good typing, right? Yeah. It's those mindless moments where you realize you've just been swiping and just clicking on what they show you, you know, responding to WhatsApp's not because you wanted to say something, but because someone else wanted to say something. And so they popped up in your feed. And so you just sort of like opened the message and started responding. And if it's mindless, I think this is where it goes wrong. I want to use some time to talk about your book because I love the title, Love It or Leave It. I mean, somebody must have taken that title before you. Nobody wrote that book with that title before. It's crazy. It's a great title. It's, it, it, do you know what? It's so funny. And it nearly wasn't the title of the book. Okay. 
Because when I first had been approached by my agent, we were writing something about my journey towards happiness and thinking about what happiness meant to me as someone maybe navigating a chronic illness, thinking about the work I wanted to do and all of that. And for some reason, it just wasn't flowing. It wasn't flowing in the right way. I think I also wasn't prepared to be super vulnerable just yet. And so we were in a stilted place. And my agent was going on her mat leave and she said, look, I'd love you to meet my co-worker and um, he is maybe taking over or you might want to find a new agent. And um, we had a conversation. He was just like, yeah, that title's rubbish. He was just very blunt. He was like, yeah, that's nonsense. Tell me what else you do. So I said, oh, I've been doing this workshop at The Guardian. It's called Love It or Leave It. It's really, you know, getting people to think about falling in love with their job or leaving. He's like, that's the title of your book. And I said, oh, yeah. And he just said, like, it's just perfect. It's brilliant. And he's like, why didn't you think of that before? And I just said, I don't know. And I think when I first came up with it for The Guardian and they were like, oh, that's, it's going to be, it's quite a provocative statement, though. Do you think it's going to work? And it was always the most popular class. And it just spiraled from there. And I I love it because I I think a lot of people are ready to make a definitive decision versus being in this kind of gray area for so long of not loving it, not knowing what to do, no action. And then a year later, they're still in the same place. Is that really what you're saying? If you don't love your job, leave it? No, because do you know what? I think for me, I, I want you to make a decision. I want you to decide this moment in time to ask yourself some really tough questions and to think about making a choice with how you want to live your life. And that's what I really want people to discover in the book is that rather than you sitting, because I've done a lot of workshops, I've led a lot of workshops at the School of Life, I've talked at the Guardian, corporate workshops, individual workshops, and there is always this horrible haze that sits over people where they're like, I just don't know if this is what I should be doing or I just don't know how to make it work, or I'm just frustrated. Or there is the tension with so much emotional and parental baggage around what work should look like and what they should be doing, or the fact that they've spent so many years training, or maybe they've got visibility issues or putting themselves out there. And I just felt like I just wanted to to shake them almost. And I feel like this book is that disruption to say, I don't want you walking around in a haze anymore. I want you to really realize that life could be so amazing if you just choose a path. And actually, a lot more people are choosing love it because they're realizing that loving it is around looking at it from an internal and an external perspective. So internal is what can I actually do because I am in control here of myself. I am the common theme in all of my relationships, in every situation in my life. It is me as the common person. And so if I don't take some time to think about how I'm nurturing my body, how I'm looking after myself, how I am triggered in relationships, how I'm thinking about the way I approach tasks, that's not going to change. No amount of pushing and prodding until you are ready to decipher that and make a change. That's how you move forward. And then there are some external situations like trying to get that pay rise or the promotion or thinking about the other people that you work with and and those structures that you can have an influence on as well. So it's not just passively going, oh God, everyone on my team's like really loud and toxic and it just feels intense. I've just got to put up with it. Actually, no. How do you take the time to really identify 
if some of those relationships that you're feeling triggered by or irritated by isn't something that an area of growth for you, isn't in an area where actually you can learn to speak up for yourself, where you can learn to proactively engage with a different skill set, because I do think that relationships are containers for growth. I feel like it's mirrors, it is places for us to learn in, for us to see where we want to grow, where the other person needs to grow, and we need to leave them to do their healing and carry on with our lives. So that's a love it. And leave it is like, okay, I might have exhausted all those options or actually it's not my calling. It's not the career I thought it was going to be. And so therefore I'm ready to leave it to find a new job or to create a portfolio career where I'm looking at ways that I can do multiple things that I'm passionate about and figure out how to make the money that I want. And I think that's important now where people have lost their livelihoods focused on one direction and we need to be a bit more anti-fragile with our careers. Would you recommend that people throw themselves off the cliff before they figure out how they're going to open the parachute? Or Because that works, by the way. So sometimes I tell people the easiest way to face your fear is to just commit yourself to it. Or are you saying when you've decided that it's time to leave it, you should start searching, take your time, but make it a commitment on your side that you're going to go to something that you love? I don't advise people to quit straight away. I think for me, I've seen too many people flounder in the space of either they haven't got the financial backing or the personal confidence isn't there or the level of like, I can make this work. I think there is a certain type of energy that maybe not everyone is ready for straight away to just quit and throw caution to the wind. If you want to do that, fine, but it's never an attitude that I've been like, quit. Because I'm also of the opinion that Just quitting things in life isn't always the best way. I do believe that there is something we can learn because also when you quit, you don't really give yourself enough time to either grieve or process what it is that you've left behind. It's just that thrill and the rush of like handing in your your resignation and off to this new thing that you're going to explore and ponder on. But the reality is that maybe not everyone has that financial cushion to quit or maybe they haven't really deciphered what their skills and strengths are. You ask how many people, what are your strengths? And, you know, glaring silence. (laughs) Ask anyone to tell me what their weaknesses are. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. You know, if you haven't had the time to explore that, how do you know you're going to be any good at moving from accountancy to photography? And so I do like to, to give people a roadmap of what leaving can look like. And when you're ready to go, go. But I do feel like there needs to be a bit more of a considered approach to leaving because sometimes we can find ourselves in a spiral where we were so quick to leave one fire and we run into another and we haven't fully processed why we wanted to leave the other place and build the right bridge to get to the next thing. You said that relationships and challenges are containers for growth. Do you think that's always the case? So when something is difficult are you saying this is actually an opportunity for me to stop and, and just reflect what am I missing? Is it always about me? I don't know if it's always about you, but I do feel like there is a time for you to stop and think what's not working here. And it's almost like um, there was a, a psychology test by, I think it's Helen Noble. And she talks about building or creating a responsibility chart. And a lot of times people are interested in going straight to self-martyrdom. It's all my fault. I was the one who was the victim here and I did this wrong and I didn't do it right. And she says that there are 
ways that we need to evaluate situations that come up in our life. You know, what was our contribution and our our effect on this particular relationship or situation? What were the other people's contribution? And what was the situation as a, as a whole? And by taking all of those different areas into consideration, I think we can have a lot of learning. I don't think that we need to come from a place of everything that's bad that happens to me is for me and it is there to toughen and strengthen me because sometimes bad stuff is bad stuff and it shouldn't happen to anybody. But I do think we have to question, is this a behavior or an energy that I'm going to change, welcome or address? If I'm prepared to do that, great. If it's not, then walk away from it with a sense of pride and, and urgency to know that actually this wasn't healing for me and I don't need it in my life and I'm okay to change that. Always start everything with a simple assumption because, as you rightly said, some people will have a tendency to say, it's always my mistake, it's always my mistake, while others will have the tendency to say, it's always life, life is always against me, I'm the victim. I always start from a mathematical mean where I say it's 50-50. It's likely to be partly my mistake and partly life trying to teach me something. Now let's prove if that's true or not. And then from there... I can start to build to a place where it's 80, 20 or 60, 40 or whatever that is. But I think the assumption that there is something for me to learn and something for me to grow is quite a, a useful place for me to start. I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So I, I love it. I don't want to leave it, but uh, ah! <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's a wonderful conversation, Samantha. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I think a lot of people will find this eye-opening. You've opened my own eyes to a few things. Thank you. Oh, good. Well, I'll see you next year then. <laughs> exactly. Once a year as always. <laughs> yeah. Let's hope it's sooner. Thank you, Samantha, very yeah, much. Definitely. Thank you so much. It's been great. Wait. Don't go just yet. Let's spend a few minutes to reflect on what I heard here from Samantha. I think the highlight of this conversation for me was that sentence of, is this serving me or am I serving it? And I think that's really so key about everything that we do at work and in life in general today. It's the idea of, why am I doing this? Am I doing this because I've been conditioned somehow to just behave that way? Or is there some kind of gain, some kind of advancement, some kind of progress, some kind of learning that I get out of it? And I think that choice, that choice between if I was doing it just because I'm in that movement, in that motion, in that mindless following, then maybe there is something for me to consider here about changing it. I think the title of her book, The Idea of Love It or Leave It, is a very simple binary choice. It's like, if you don't love doing what you're doing, either learn to love it or find a way, find another way. Life is a life of abundance. I think that comes totally at the heart of self-love and self-compassion is I care enough about myself not to put myself every day in something that I don't love, let alone something that irritates me or gets on my nerves or consumes me or drains me. If work 
is a necessary evil if you want, shouldn't it be the easiest possible, the most fit? If a relationship is not serving me, shouldn't I go back and reflect on do I love it or do I leave it? I think that idea is really, really important. I found that this resonated really strongly with me on what I've been doing with my half-monk approach, the idea of trying to give more of my day to the things that I love, give more of my only limited resource in life, which is my time, my life itself. And how much of it should I waste in toxic swiping and typing mindlessly just because I've been serving the machine of social media, believing that this is a good way for me to get to audiences while I could actually live and be effective at the same time. I could live a life where I'm mindful and filling that life with all of the things that I'm looking for in my spiritual practice and my spiritual ascendance while I limit the time to only what makes me effective. I also very much liked her comment that said, I am the common theme in all aspects of my life. I really liked the idea of how we polarize. Some of us will say life is just harsh because I need to learn. It's always, there is always something for me that I need to learn or because I'm the victim and life is just harsh and against me. And I think I am the common theme in all of those things that happen in my life. And perhaps by me taking charge of me, I can actually make a difference to all of those things at once. It's not always a call for growth. She said, I liked that. It's not always a call for growth. But if it is, maybe it's a choice that I have to make. And she summarized that choice, not about work, really. I think that's a very interesting choice. She said, you need to make the choice of how you want to live your life. And many of us never actually spend the time sitting down to think about how we want to change our life, how we want to live our life. I liked that she categorized work as a job, a career, or a calling. I think that's a distinct difference that we rarely look at. So it's actually okay to work just a job, pays the bills that, you know, it takes care of the necessities. It's also sometimes targeted just by that career. I will not do this for the now, but I will do it for the future. And then in the future, something will happen. But neither of those really is the purpose of what's my calling. Is it calling for me? Is it calling for me? Is it something that I want to wake up tomorrow and do again? Is that what I'm about? I felt that the conversation about COVID-19 was quite interesting. I mean, when we spoke about how some people failed to cope with that lockdown because they needed work as a distraction. I think that's something we need to think about. If you're so in need of going out there just because you can't function without something distracting you for eight to 10 hours a day, then maybe get a life. 
maybe I don't know how to say it any nicer, but maybe we were not made to be distracted 10 hours a day by work. Maybe if we were forced when we spoke about the idea of universal basic income and that people were put at home being paid by the government to do nothing, maybe, maybe there is something there. Maybe there is something to be done other than work. The reason we end up realizing that we're sitting there doing nothing is because we have not trained ourselves through the years to do something else with those eight to 10 hours. And maybe that teething problem, that pain of transitioning from a life that is all about, I'm going to quarrel with my colleagues and write emails and add numbers for 10 hours can be replaced with, I'm going to build relationships or focus on my hobbies for some of those hours, or in my case, do my spiritual practice for some of those hours. I also really enjoyed that approach that she uses for zoning her life with a work fragrance and a work dress and a way to allocate certain hours for work and then other hours for a different dress and a different fragrance and using the same computer to connect with friends or do something else. I think that distinction, that playfulness is something that is, uh, it's a good advice that I will probably use instead of talking to you right now in my trainers and my t-shirt, just because it was easier that way. I'll sum it all up in, I think everything that she told me was just moving to that one sentence that she dropped very quickly at the end. When things are challenging us, she said, you can either change it, welcome it, or address it. Didn't have the time to chat a lot with her about this, but I think that definition is quite interesting. If there is something in our life that's not going exactly as we want it to, it's worth a moment of reflection where you could end up actually welcoming it and say, look, it's not exactly what I like. I would have liked life to be different, but I've studied and I've looked at it attentively, mindfully, and I decide to welcome it into my life so it doesn't annoy me anymore. When I welcome it after thorough thinking, then it's part of my choice. It's not been imposed on me. I could also address it. I could also deal with it in a way that makes things better despite its presence, what I normally refer to as committed acceptance. Or I could change it, which is an option that most of us leave last, I would say. Most of us don't visit unless they're forced to. We somehow, as I told Samantha, are motivated either by fear or ego. And those decisions to stay with things that we don't really agree with in our life are normally driven by one of those. While maybe, not maybe, surely sometimes there is value in changing the things that we don't want. Because if a job is a job, then you might as well find one that you love. I think that was a fascinating conversation. I loved every bit of it. I'm going to wait for the next year or hopefully sooner for me and Samantha to meet again. And uh, yeah, if you've liked this, please help me share it. Remember to like it on 
social media, share it on social media, tell your friends about it, rate the podcast of five stars on the player that you're using to play it, and find me on social media and tell me how I can make this better. Tell me about guests that you want to suggest for me to host or about topics that you want me to discuss or about your own reflections of those interesting conversations. I loved that conversation. I loved that conversation. And I love you all for listening. Thank you for joining me.